Well, good morning. Hey, welcome to Bridgewater. We're so glad you're here. Uh, my name is Matt, and I'm the campus pastor here. I uh, just wanted to say happy Thanksgiving to all of you. hope you had a wonderful time with friends and family. Uh, and in the spirit of Thanksgiving, just wanted to echo what Josh said there and just say thank you. Thank you to those of you who uh, have been a part through prayer or through giving uh, financially to allow us to get to this point. We are very excited to see what God is going to do uh, in the days to come. And <clears throat> every time I run into the Tunkhannock campus guys, um, they're glowing. I'm not quite sure why they're glowing, but they're glowing. Uh, they're, they're super excited as they think about and pray about the people that they're going to be able to reach with the good news of Jesus uh, because of this. And so I just wanted to say thank you for that. If you have any questions about that, what that looks like, uh, p- please feel free to come find me and we'll help answer any of those questions we have for you. We are in week four of our series, The Tale of Three Kings. Uh, if you've missed any of the last ones, you can check them out online. Uh, you can hear from any one of our communicators at any one of our campuses. Uh, and what we're looking at in this series is three men who were uh, kind of positioned physically to be everything you would expect out of uh, a leader. They were what you looked at and said, I'm going to follow that guy. They had everything externally, but, but what we've been looking at really is that um, there's much more than just the external presence of leadership. There's an internal character qualities that must be true if we're going to lead well and lead in the direction that God would call us uh, to lead. And as we saw through King Saul, um, he really lacked a lot of those internal qualities. And then we looked this last week at David and some of the great qualities he had that actually propelled him to greatness. So I just wanted to uh, review quickly kind of where we've been because it's going to help make sense of where we're going today. Um, but Saul looked, uh, if you looked in at Saul's life, one of the markers of him was insecurity and fear. Uh, he did not lead the people. The opinions of the people led him. So the decisions he made weren't because it's what God called him to do and it was what was best. It was what were the people going to think of him. He led really largely not because he uh, feared God, but because he feared what people might judge him or think of him or um, he might not be popular. Right? So then the, the big piece that ultimately ended up eroding his uh, kingdom was jealousy. Uh, as he looked in on King David, who was this uh, young up-and-comer, uh, he was threatened by him. He turned, who really was an ally, David was an ally, into an enemy out of this deep insecurity, ended up becoming distracted from leading the kingdom like he was supposed to because he was so bent on protecting and defending his ego uh, that ultimately he lost the affection of the people, he lost the affection of his family, and ultimately loses the kingdom to David. Well, as we looked at last week, as David rises, he, he rises to the top, not because his path was paved uh, with great ease, but in fact, it was incredibly difficult and trialsome. And you could say uh, because of his difficult path, he ended up becoming great. It forged in him a character that allowed him to, uh, to be courageous where others would be uh, fearful. It caused him to uh, step in to take down Goliath and to fight the battles that God had called him to fight, but also to show great mercy. When Saul was trying to kill him, he held back 400 of his men uh, from enacting vengeance on his enemy and said, no, 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 Uh, the Lord would not have us do this. And he was merciful, allowing God to be the judge. Now, what we're going to talk about today is kind of the end, not the end, kind of the middle end-ish of uh, David's story. And unfortunately, it is not a fairy tale ending. It is not happily ever after for King David. As you examine King David's life uh, today, what you'll notice something began to fade for David. Something began to slip. Um, Whatever it was, it it caused him to just uh, start to make decisions and make compromises that he would have never made in his life uh, previously. So I want to pick the story up in 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you have your Bibles with me, I want you to go ahead and turn there. If you don't have one, we would love to put one for free in your hands 
back at the Welcome Center. And you can look on your phone in the YouVersion app or the screen behind me. But in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we see what begins to fade in the life of David that ultimately steers him off the path of greatness. And I want to say before we read this, um, as we've been going through this story, one of the things that is really important that we do consistently is when we read the Word of God, um, that we don't sit in the position of judgment of the characters, um, that we read these stories as the cautionary tales that they were meant to be. Right? As you read these stories, you go, ooh, <laughs> I don't want to make those same decisions. And that requires us to sit in a position of humility with Scripture. As James tell, the book of James in the New Testament tells us, the Word of God is a mirror. That as we look at it, it, it should be reflecting back to us our own heart. And so really, as we read this cautionary tale of David's really demise, I want us to be asking questions as if we were looking in a mirror saying, is this true of my life? Could this be true of my life? And what should I do with it this morning? So 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. The author here is making something very clear um, that David is not where he's supposed to be. David, the mighty warrior, the man who uh, won the affection of the people because he was courageous in battle, uh, was very pleased at this point in his life to sit on his couch, let his right-hand man go do what he himself was supposed to do. He was not where he was supposed to be when he was supposed to be there. And the, the author doesn't outright say this, but he's alluding to the fact that he was very content to, to choose comfort and ease over what was right and dutiful. He was pleased to be sitting on his couch when all of his men were in danger. And as you read this, you have to begin to ask the question, why? What happened in David, this man who was always leading the charge, that he's happy to just sit in comfort and ease? And I wonder if perhaps there was a bit of entitlement that began to take place in his heart. Oh man, I've done my time, I've done my diligence, I fought hard, I, I served there, but man, it's it's my time to sit in the lazy boy. I've done my time. It's, right. We don't know, but it would appear that's what the author is making very clear. Now, what happens, and maybe you know the story, maybe you don't, is this decision to sit on his couch when he should be somewhere else ultimately leads him to make a, a life-altering decision. He looks across and he sees a woman who's not his wife named Bathsheba, and he invites her over, whether by choice or by force, we don't know. Uh, he sleeps with her and he gets her pregnant. Now, uh, where once this mighty man of courage stood with righteous fervor to not do anything that would offend God, he now gladly jumps in. Where he once held 400 men back from killing his own enemy at the front of the cave, he now gladly gives in to the enemy of his own desires within. And not only that, he begins to use his power and his position, which where he once used it for the good of others and the glory of God, he's now using that same position to leverage it for his own gain. You see, he invites Uriah, Bathsheba's uh, husband, to come back from war. He, he comes back and he tries to trick Uriah to cover this whole thing up. He says, hey, Uriah, go sleep with your wife. Well, the problem was David had this rule where his men weren't allowed to sleep with their wives while they were in battle. Uriah knows this rule. He knows it's David's rule. And so he pretty much sleeps on the front porch of his house to make sure that he doesn't break this rule. So that doesn't work. David's confronted by the own moral code of his own that his man's upholding that he didn't himself uphold. 
So then he tries another attempt. He sends him off to the front of the battle. He basically says, make him get killed in battle. And then what does David do next? He marries Bathsheba. All of a sudden, nobody thinks anything of the fact that there's a baby. They just think David and Bathsheba had a baby after they got married, right? You know what the crazy part of the story is? Nobody figured it out. Nobody knew. He, he leveraged his position and his power to get away with it until God reminded him that nothing is lost on him, until God reminded him that he sees everything, even the things we try to hide from people. So a prophet named Nathan walks into David and begins to tell him the story, and he tells him the story of this rich man with a lot of sheep, and he said there was this rich man, he had a lot of sheep, and one day he looked over to a poor man who had one single sheep, and that poor man loved that one sheep, and the rich man came and he took that sheep. What should be done to the rich man? Nathan poses this question to David. I want you to read with me David's response as he hears this story. Chapter 12, verse 5. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. I find it interesting as you look at David's life where he once was an incredibly merciful man to a guy trying to kill him. He's now casting judgment four times over on himself. And he doesn't even see it. What you see is this this transition or this transaction take place in David's life where there once stood uh, great courage. Uh, he, He replaced it ultimately with comfort. His decision-making wasn't what was right and what was God calling him to. It was what was comfortable. And to be honest, not going to war and sitting on the couch was pretty comfortable. Where there once stood great mercy in his heart, now he's casting judgment on a situation four times over. Well, God does bring judgment on David's family. He's ultimately broken at this moment. He repents. He's remorseful for the decision. He knows God has found him out. Um, And and he is forgiven, but still there are consequences to his choices. And God says there will be uh, calamity, basically, in your family because of these decisions you've made. And and the story is not David and Bathsheba that we want to talk about today. The story really is ultimately what happened after. What happened as a result? But I think to understand what happens after, you have to really examine what was taking place now. What had gone wrong in the mighty man of David that this is where he ended up. I think what you see is that ultimately he became passive in leading himself. He became passive in leading himself. Yes, he was still a king. Yes, he still had authority. But he wasn't leading himself in the way that he knew he was supposed to. He was making choices of compromise for ease, for comfort, for whatever it might be. He knew himself he wasn't doing what was right. Which leads us to ask the question, if the word is a mirror... Are you leading yourself well? Am I leading myself well? And, and I'm going to get, I'm gonna get um, petty here because I think it's important to be petty sometimes. How are you doing with your health? Are you leading yourself well in your health? Or are you neglecting those things and ultimately it's leading you to be tired and grumpy and, and not present? Are you leading yourself well financially to, to take care of your money, to, to be a good steward of that? Are you leading yourself well in your work ethic, to be working hard, to be not just clocking in and collecting paychecks, but to be diligent in that? 
Are you leading yourself well in rest and taking care of yourself and Sabbath rest? And you think, well, these things aren't a big deal, Matt. These are so minor. Well, here's the deal. So was taking a nap on the couch. What started as a minor, passive, not doing what he was supposed to do, turned into a decision, into another decision, which turned into murder, which which turned into adultery, which turned into murder, which turned into a cover-up. He got there because somewhere along the line, something small and insignificant didn't seem like it was worth dealing with. And now he's here. So as you consider your own life and my life, we have to begin to ask ourselves, how are we doing? Are there areas that we're falling short? And as I've uh, gone through this text this week, um, in these last couple weeks, I I can tell you I've identified a few. (laughs) Uh, One in particular I was sharing with somebody that as I was coming into problems, I was finding myself thinking and worrying and problem solving far more than I was praying. So I, as your pastor, can stand up here and say, guys, pray about your problems, and then I can go not do it. I'm fully capable of that. And so for me, I had to pause this week and say, man, I got to confess, I I have not been going to the Lord to solve problems for me. I have been trying to solve them on my own. Okay, well, it's hard for me to encourage you to do that if I'm not doing it myself. This is incredibly important because as you look at David's life, it started with him not doing the things he knew he was supposed to do that ultimately then bled into those that he was supposed to love, influence, and lead. Let's pick it up in chapter 13 and see what happens as a result of David not doing what he knew was right. Chapter 13, verse 1. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Let me explain the family tree here real quick. So Amnon is David's firstborn son. Absalom is his half-brother. So those two are are half-brothers. Tamar is Absalom's sister. So uh, Tamar and Amnon are half-sisters. Okay? Verse 2. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now, Amnon had an advisor named Jonadab, son of Shimea, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Amnon, why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? Amnon said to him, I am in love with Tamar, my, my brother Absalom's sister. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my my sight that I may watch her and then eat it from my hand. Now, as you listen to the story, um, one of the things that I always ask is, how did Jonadab figure out something was wrong, but David had no idea? This wicked, perhaps even shrewd man uh, is picking up on the fact that something's wrong with Amnon. Something's not right. He's the one asking the question, what's going on? What you don't see in any of this narrative, and I encourage you to read it for yourself later, is you don't see David asking the question, what's going on? You don't see the father going, hmm, something's off with my son. Let me engage. He, he, He does none of that. Well, the problem was uh, this advice that Jonadab gave worked. Uh, he, goes and he goes to David, and David uh, says basically like, okay, fine. And as you read this, you feel like you're watching one of those TV shows or those films where like you see the plot line coming the whole time, but the main character doesn't, and you just want to like scream like, how do you not see this? But David doesn't. Well, ultimately, um, Amnon gets Tamar, and he has his way with her, and it's awful. And I want you to read what happens as a result of this. Verse 15. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he loved her. And can I just say that that is the result of lust every time? 
That is the result of lust every time, that it will leave us hating what we thought would ultimately deliver to us great love and satisfaction because it is not designed to give that to us. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. Verse 16, no, she said to him, sending me away would be greater wrong than what you have already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out, bolted the door after her, and she was wearing the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornate robe she was wearing. She put her hands on her head and went away weeping aloud as she went. Now, we don't see this clearly, but what would be true for them customarily is that in a situation like this, it would be the father's responsibility to step in, to bring this daughter back into his home and to care for her because uh, culturally she would really just be marked for the rest of her life uh, because of this decision. But what you see as you read through this narrative uh, is that David does nothing. He does not step in and take care of his daughter. He does not stand up for what was wrong. He does nothing to correct his son. And in fact, Absalom, his son, ultimately steps in. And here's what it says in verse 20. Her brother Absalom said to her, has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. Here's your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. Basically, what he said here is, I'll take care of this. I'll take care of you and I'll take care of this. Come into my home. I want you to see David's response. Verse 21. When King David heard all of this, he was furious. But you know what doesn't come next? Action. In the same way he was furious at the story of the sheep, he gets furious and he's angry here, but he does absolutely nothing to defend his daughter to cast rightful judgment on his son because he would have been the heir to the throne. According to Levitical law, what should have happened to him was that he should have been either executed or exiled, right? Like as I read this story, as a a parent myself, I'm reading it thinking, do something. (laughs) Even if you fly off the handle and throttle Amnon, like that's probably the wrong way, but like at least you did something. And instead he sits in complete passivity and does nothing to defend his daughter, does nothing to enact justice. He is no longer being the king and father that he's supposed to be. Why? Because when we are unwilling to lead ourselves well, it is impossible for us to lead others well. I have to imagine as David was sitting there uh, looking at this mess in his family, thinking, but who am I to step into this? After what I did with Bathsheba, after having Uriah murdered, I have to imagine that the shame of those decisions began to cripple him as he looked in at his son thinking, I am in no better of a position to tell you that you were wrong. Crippled, unwilling to be the king that the kingdom needed, which would have been his responsibility to enact justice, unwilling to be the father to correct his son, unwilling to be the father to defend his daughter. Nothing. What you see is when we're passive in leading ourselves, it ultimately makes us passive in the leadership of others. He wasn't the man that his kids or the kingdom needed. Which leads us to ask the next question of the mirror. Are you leading others well? As you consider the spheres of influence that God has given you, whether it be in your marriage, whether it be with your kids, whether it be in the workplace, are you stepping into the spaces that God has given you purpose to step into well? You see, it's really hard to to teach your kids about being respectful and being kind and treating each other well when they're hearing us on the phone yelling back at telemarketers and being rude and being like it. It's hard to lead in those 
areas. It, it's hard to lead and influence people for the name of Jesus when your lifestyle contradicts what the Word of God would say. See, because our choices aren't in a vacuum. The, the decisions we make aren't in a vacuum. They're reflective both of ourselves and of God. So as you consider your own life and the people God has called you to influence, how are you doing? Are there things in there that maybe you got to work on? As you consider even your spheres of influence, your friends, are you leading others well there too? Because here's ultimately what became a problem. It wasn't just behaviors. He ultimately ended up overlooking sin. The shame of his own life caused him to overlook the sin in in, uh, Amnon's life. And you think, but isn't it merciful to not confront someone on their sin? Like, isn't that the whole deal about mercy? And and what what I would say to that is, that's passivity, not mercy. That's passivity, not mercy. Passivity says, oh, that's too uncomfortable. I don't want to step into that space. Oh, that's too difficult. Oh, I have my own mess. I can't step in there. Mercy, actually, in this situation for David, would have been to step in and confront the sin. It would have been to step into the void and say, Amnon, what are you doing? Stop. But he doesn't, which leads us to ask the next question of the mirror. Is there sin you're not dealing with? Maybe in your own life, Maybe in the lives of your friends, maybe in your friends' circle, there's a lot of gossip taking place or backbiting. And man, that one's real uncomfortable to stop. Can we just be honest? <laughs> like, it is so uncomfortable to throw the flag on gossip and backbiting and grumbling, but because we're all quite prone to it. But is there sins we're not dealing with within our midst? Because as you consider Amnon's life, right, as a father, to not do anything to correct his son. Maybe he was thinking, oh, I, I want to be merciful because I needed mercy, so I'm not going to deal with this. Um, can, I, I would go as far as to say this. To leave someone in their sin is not mercy, but an unwillingness to spare them judgment. If you see someone headed on the course of destruction, and you see it, God has made it clear, the word of God makes it clear, and you see them headed there, and you go, hmm, I want to be merciful, so I'm not going to bring it up. And say, that's not mercy, that's passivity. To look at someone headed down that path and say, I love you, I care about you, I'm pleading with you, I see where this road is taking you, I see the decisions you're making, and I care too much about you to let you walk down that road because I've been there, my friends have been there, I see where that leads. Would you consider turning to Jesus, repenting, changing your ways, and and ultimately ending up on a different road of life and life abundant? You see, that's mercy, that we would spare someone from judgment. And so David's unwillingness to be a dad here, to be a parent, and try to not judge or bring rightful judgment on his son ultimately left the door open for even greater judgment in his life, which is what happens next in verse 22. And Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. Two years later, when Absalom's sheep shearers were at Baal Hazar, near the border of Ephraim, he invited all the king's sons to come there. Absalom went to the king and said, Your servant has had shearers come. Will the king and his attendants please join me? No, my son, the king replied. All of us should not go. We would only be a burden to you. Although Absalom urged him, he still refused to go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon come with us. The king asked him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, so he sent with Amnon and the rest of uh, sent with him Amnon and the rest of the king's son. 
Again, I feel like you're watching a movie and the killer is standing right behind him and you're like, how do you not see this? Right? Like David's kind of like, this is a little suspicious. Why do you want Amnon there? And he like spins some story and he's like, okay, cool. That's fine. But like, how, how do you get there as a parent? Like you, you have to know what's coming. You have to see the decisions that are about to be made. And David does nothing to stop it. He doesn't say, no, you're not having Amnon. He didn't say, okay, but I'm sending with you my men to protect him. He does nothing. Well, the story comes back to David that the entire, uh, all of his sons have been killed, and his advisor kind of leans in and says, no, that's not true. It's just Amnon. Like, literally, the whole kingdom saw this coming, David. How did you not see this coming? And at this point, you have to ask, like, is enough enough for David? Is, is enough enough? His, his son's committing murder. Is it finally going to get him enough that he does something? No. No, he does nothing. He doesn't correct Absalom. He doesn't do anything. In fact, Absalom runs away. He lives in a different village for three years. Nothing. Finally, he sends word back to the king, um, who's been living alone in his palace with a dead son, a disgraced daughter, and a fugitive son. Frozen, paralyzed. Well, Absalom says, I want to come back. So Joab, his, his advisor, gets him back, comes into Jerusalem, but then David doesn't engage with him. He doesn't talk with him. The problem is sitting across from the street from him. He does nothing, just coldness. Well, Absalom's had enough of it, so he lights Joab's field on fire to get his attention. And then what happens next, we're going to cover this more next week, is, is ultimately Absalom ends up starting a coup and steals the heart of the people and kicks David out of his own kingdom. David hears rumor that this is coming, and you know what David does to stop the coup? Nothing. He packs his bags, tells his people to pack his bags, and he leaves without a fight, leaving the kingdom vulnerable to a man with wicked intentions. All of this started because of a nap on the couch, which is why the small decisions we make in leading ourselves ultimately pave the way for the future decisions we're going to make. As you consider David's life at this point, what you see really is the moment from that the shame from that one night ultimately kept him from moving forward. It kept him from ever dealing with, fixing, or responding to the things in his life. And here's the thing about Christianity, and here's the thing about following God. God has the power to do something about it. He just didn't go there. God did forgive him. He could have changed. He could have recovered from these life choices, but he chose not to. He chose to be crippled by those things. And maybe for you, as you consider your own life, you can relate to that feeling. I know I can. I've done things that I've regretted, and I've carried shame from my decisions, and I can appreciate the passivity that David sat in. Because as I've looked around, I go, man, I messed up too. Who am I to judge? Who am I to step into this space? Well, that's only true if we don't allow God to take things. It is only true if we hold on to the shame of those things. Here's what I want you to see David traded in his life because it's important for us. David traded ultimately his courage for comfort. He traded righteousness, living rightly, for self-pleasure. He traded his authority as a king, as a dad, for a moment of pleasure. He traded confidence in who God was, the confidence in God's character, for deep shame. 
And ultimately, he traded the brave obedience that one led him, once led him to take down Goliath to lose the kingdom and leave the people he was called to leave vulnerable to a wicked man. You see him fail to step into the spaces that God so clearly called him to step into. Which leads me to ask the last question of the mirror. What are you not facing that you need to? As you consider the things in your past, the regrets, and maybe it's not as intense as David's, I don't, I don't know all of your story, but I would have to imagine there's some things in there. There's some things you wish you could undo. Uh, have you taken those, looked them in the eye, and done what Scripture calls us to, just hand them over to Jesus? See, what David seemed to be unable to do was to move past his failures, and the reality is we all have them. We all fall short, but the invitation of Jesus is not to stay stuck in those failures, but to come to Jesus to find forgiveness and ultimately be given new purpose, to ultimately be given new life, that you are not stuck in your past, or perhaps even in the present that you're currently trying to evade. Let me read to you Hebrews chapter 12, the good news for us here today. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Can we park right there? I just want you to see this. Throw off the things that hinders. That means sitting on the couch when you should be working, right? That means non-sin things too. He said, God has given us the ability to make the little things matter and given us the ability to overcome them. Let's keep reading. And the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The good news for us here today is that Jesus is the king we ultimately needed. Jesus is the king that David ultimately needed, and thankfully, Jesus is the king we got, though he's not the king we deserved. As you see what the author of Hebrews says here, the good news is that Jesus was not passive in your sin. He did not sit back passively while we walked the path of destruction. In fact, he moved towards us. He came and found us while we were still his enemies. He came and died for us. And he didn't cast judgment on us. In fact, judgment was put on Jesus so that you could be given mercy, not judgment. What he traded for you was your shame, and instead he gave you forgiveness. And because he's seated on the throne and he didn't give the throne to darkness, he sits on the throne in power. We now have the power uh, through his spirit to overcome the sin that so easily entangles us. You see, Jesus is the king we needed. He's the king who brought us the salvation, who rescued us from our sin, rescued us from our shame, and said, you don't have to live that way. You don't have to go down that course. You don't have to continue towards destruction because Jesus has paid a way for you to find new life. Glory be to God, what he has done for us. If I were to summarize everything I said this morning, it would be this. You can't lead others well until you are leading yourself well. And you can't lead yourself well until Jesus is leading you. I don't know you, but I know you want to lead yourself well. 
I know you want to live a life that is full and full of joy and full of good things. I know that you want to be a great parent and a great spouse. I know those are desires of your heart. And can I tell you, Jesus wants them for you too. And he has a way for you to get them. So here's my invitation to you this morning. Would you, would you let Jesus lead you? Maybe you're here and you've never made that decision. You yourself have been sitting on the throne. You yourself have been making decisions, but um, if you're going to be honest this morning, you don't really love where it's taken you. You don't love the hurt that it's brought you. Well, the invitation of Jesus is to get off the throne, put Jesus on the throne where he rightfully belongs, and be given forgiveness and freedom from shame and life and life abundant. If you're here today and you've never made that decision, I would love to have a conversation with you. We're going to spend some time praying at the end uh, to invite you to make Jesus the leader and forgiver in your life. Maybe you're here and you've prayed that prayer, you you made that decision, but to be honest, uh, you've put yourself back in the throne. You have been making decisions that you have decided what is right and wrong, and it hasn't worked out well for you. Can I just be honest that we've all been there? (laughs) We've all done it. We've all had those moments where we've looked up and gone, I did it again. Good news for us today is that Jesus is ready and willing to set things right again. He's ready and willing to forgive, to be back in the rightful place, and to lead you to life and life abundant. Maybe you're here, and for you, you need to be led to God's word. You need to spend some time looking in the mirror and examining how you're doing and leading, examining how you're leading others, examining sin, and that God would reveal it to you in his mercy to spare us judgment. Maybe you need to be led to God's people, like, I have to wonder the whole time as I'm hear David, hearing David's story, why was nobody going, David, what are you doing? David, what, what's up? I see the decisions you're making. Why are you headed down this path? Like, why was nobody asking David these questions? What I know of my life is somebody has to be asking me those questions because I have blind spots. I have things I'm willing to overlook and ignore because it's more comfortable or more convenient for me. We need the people in our life to help us get to where God is calling us to be. And then ultimately, as all of those things are true, that you would let God lead you back to the purposes that he has for you. See, when God called David, he called him to be a king who leads people to godliness. When God called you, he called you to be a light post in darkness. He called you to be a mother and a father. He called you to be a husband and a dad. He called you to be a friend and a neighbor who has a purpose of shining Jesus brightly into a dark world that so desperately needs hope. That's the purpose God has given you. And that's the purpose he wants to give you again. Because the story of a Christian is not one who had it all together, had it all figured out, glory to God, amen. The story of a Christian is one full of bumps, bruises, and mess-ups who always returned and repented of their sin and found their way back to Jesus. And then, when those things are true, you can begin to start leading yourself in the way that both you desire and God has called you to. You can begin to lead your home in the way that you desire and God has called you to. You can begin to lead in the workplace, in the church world, in the way that you desire and God has called you to. Let's pray. Dearly Father, we come to you and, and to be honest, I just stand here in humility as I consider the fact that I I'm probably more like David than I want to admit in this way. God, I'm so thankful that you have rescued us. Lord, I pray that shame would never win the day for anybody. That your love would overcome our darkest regrets and our deepest secrets. If you're here today and you've not yet experienced the love of God and his forgiveness, 
I invite you to pray this prayer with me today if you want to make Jesus the leader and forgiver of your life. And it says, Father, I know I've sinned. I know I've done wrong. And today, I've become aware that I need your forgiveness. And I thank you for going to the cross, sending Jesus to the cross to die for me so that I could be given mercy and forgiveness. Today, Jesus, I repent, and I ask that you would be the leader and forgiver of my life. In Jesus' name. If you're here today and you prayed that prayer, here's what I would say to you. You can either fill out the communication card in front of you, Mark Salvation, and we'll be in contact with you. Or you can come find uh, me or David or somebody, or maybe somebody who brought you and have a conversation about what it means to follow Jesus. Dearly Father, we thank you. We rejoice in the day today because you have made a way for the lost to come home, for the broken to find healing, that we would have hope in you and you alone. And pray today that chains would be broken and you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.